Hello, and welcome to another engaging episode of Cyber Speaks Live, the InfoSec podcast recorded in front of a live online audience, giving you, the community, a voice that can be heard around the world. We're live Wednesday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. And now it's time for your host, Duncan McAllen. Hello, everyone. My name is Duncan Macklin. I am InfoSec War on Twitter, and this is another engaging episode of Cyber Speaks Live coming to you every single week with a new guest co-host to be joining us. This week, we have Joseph Carson of Phycotic. Before I get to Joseph, though, it's time for our segment where each week we pick out the top three cybersecurity incidents or cyber clusters of the week, as we like to refer to it. So this week, let's go ahead and get into it. Once again, the state of Oregon is in the news for yet another data breach, this time impacting over 645,000 constituents in their personally identifiable information. Now, if you're not familiar, the state of Oregon has had similar breaches and hacks in the past, Uh, the most significant back in 2014, where the number was closer to 800,000 impacted. So we don't know what's going on in the state of Oregon, but perhaps a little less cannabis and a bit more cyber would be pertinent. Following them, Uh, Our number two incident of the week, this one, a massive, massive data breach impacting almost 3 million Canadian citizens as a result of the largest Canadian credit union, Desjardins, I believe, again, suffering a breach this time, the result of an insider threat an IT member uh, being the one to blame. So we have quite a situation going on north of our border in so far already resulting in class action lawsuit by those Canadian citizens impacted by the state of breach and good on them for doing so. But it does highlight the concerns around cybersecurity when it comes to these types of breaches in the reputational, the legal, and of course, financial risk that is uh, realized as a result of these activities. And lastly, a very interesting one uh, involving two of the titans of cybersecurity, McAfee, in Tanium. McAfee is now suing Tanium uh, and actually the employees that have left McAfee to join Tanium and taking the quote secret sauce with them. Meaning, as you can imagine, uh, once sellers or in one of the employees' cases, I believe he was the director of finance gave their notice to McAfee, they started exfiltrating data, even to the point of emailing very sensitive company confidential information 
to themselves in order to uh, take that information with them to the next company. Now, this is a practice that we are all familiar with, and I would be surprised if many of our listeners haven't been guilty of it themselves. I know for myself, yeah, um, I have developed IP at various organizations that I guess I felt a bit entitled to take with me to the next one and to continue to improve upon that IP. You know, I was in the consulting world and, you know, you develop certain templates and documents and such that you know are going to be useful to you throughout the rest of your career. And I think we're all a bit guilty of that. But when you start exfiltrating sales data, sales forecasting, the pipeline opportunities and those kinds of things, that's where you're definitely crossing a legal line. And it's going to be very interesting to see what the outcome is of this lawsuit between McAfee and Tanium. But more importantly, I hope that organizations will take heed to this particular situation and start to think of these exiting employees as insider threats because in fact that's what they are it doesn't mean that every single employee that gives you a two-week notice is going to turn into an insider threat but it is one of those threat models that we have to consider and hopefully have some kind of controls or at least alerting and monitoring in place to be able to detect this type of activity if you look at the specifics behind the McAfee situation, it wasn't until months later that they realized that this situation was going on with all these employees being poached and moving over to Tanium that then and only then did they decide to do some type of digital forensics and realize that all this was taking place with the data being extracted from the organization. Maybe if those controls were in place to begin with, they wouldn't have lost that data. So with that, and I think that's going to actually become a good segue for introducing our guests and having the dialogue that we're going to, Joseph Carson, who is the chief security scientist and advisory CISO for Thicotic, uh, is joining us. Now, Joe has more than 25 years of experience in enterprise class cybersecurity and is an InfoSec award winner and author of Privileged Account Management for Dummies and Cybersecurity for Dummies. Uh, he's also a CIS, been an active member of the cybersecurity community and speaking at conferences globally. And, you know, I really have to applaud Joe and thank him for joining us today because he has just come off of a relentless travel schedule and is making time today to be able to join us. So I do want to thank him there. He's also a cybersecurity advisor to several governments as well as critical infrastructure, financial and maritime industry. So with that, I want to turn it over and welcome to the show. Joe Carson. Joe, thank you for joining us. Many thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Many thanks for the great introduction. Um, absolutely. And, and I'm so happy to be actually on the, on the air here uh, from Tallinn, Estonia, which is uh, where I'm uh, typically based. Um, and it's great to be spending the time here uh, and on this call. 
you mentioned being from Estonia, and I've actually got to kind of call you out there a bit, Joe. Um, for those of you that are listening in, you might have picked up on a bit of an accent there coming out of Joe's lips. <laughs> now, Joe and I share some legacy history. I got to ask you, Joe, what is a good, proper boy from Derry, Northern Ireland, doing in Estonia? How did that happen? That's a long, that's a long journey. Actually, originally from Belfast, um, that is my original city, which I'm uh, originally from, from Northern Ireland, and uh, I traveled the world extensively before ending up in Estonia. But uh, um, that's a good question. Typically, the answer is that uh, there's usually a woman uh, involved in that uh, that answer. Um, most uh, of the imports of uh, of foreign men in Estonia are attracted by the local uh, talented uh, uh, women that they do have in Estonia. Uh, yeah, and I'm, I'm fortunately one of those individuals. <laughs> <laughs> but did you put a ring on it? I did, yes, absolutely. Didn't do Amen. It. All right, then. Oh, forgiven. So, you know, if you're listening in and you're not exactly sure where in Europe Estonia is, you know, borders Russia and it's across the Gulf of Finland from Helsinki. So. Uh, just doing some of my OSINT on Joe here, I did, you know, research the, the, the country and more specifically his city. I have to tell you, it, it looks like it is just something taken out of a fairy tale. It is indeed. Absolutely gorgeous city. So I can understand why you would want to live in such a place, uh, particularly in contrast to Belfast, which we both know. Um, for just Joe, so you know why I'm so kind of in tune to that, I also have roots in Northern Ireland and lived in Ballycastle, right there on the northern coast of uh, County Antrim, <laughs> and yeah, to say the least. All my family is more in the Coleraine area, so uh, also lived in Dublin while I was building out a Microsoft System Center practice there about 10 years ago. and So yeah, we, we share a bit of history there, but uh, enough of that. Let's get into the meat of the topic, why I've invited you onto the show. Now, you are, of course, a very highly respected individual in our industry. And I think your bio speaks tremendously to that. Uh, a lot of the advisory services that you are providing to the both the public and private sector as well as your own organization and you're presenting on shows like this here i see you on the stages around the world there's some recurring themes that i notice resonated throughout a lot of these presentations that you're doing the first one that i'd like to talk to if you don't mind um, and this was one of the things that you really talked about, and I think it's the Lipid or Lipide, yes, the Lipide yeah. podcast. And yeah. video we did uh, recently at Infosecurity Europe, which is an amazing show. Yeah, it is. It is. I, I've been there as well. But you talked about really becoming a translator of business risk to the organizations, right? Absolutely. Um, now, you're in a role that's fairly unique in that you're working for a cybersecurity software company, right? You're a vendor. At the end of the day, you're a vendor. You have one of those vendor badges. You have to be escorted through the places, right? We, we understand the relationship, but you're also an advisory CISO to these types of organizations around the world. So how do you balance 
articulating the business risk to the organization without telling them what it is, right? Because this is one of the things, and it really flared up on Twitter earlier this week. We had kind of a, a, a salty CISO that was really just not letting go of this argument about vendors need to basically shut up. They don't need to be talking about risk. They, you know, and, and I kind of came back and said, you know, there, there's an opportunity based off of our depth and breadth uh, of experience to be able to talk about some of the things that we see, the commonalities based off of industry or, you know, infosec maturity that we can say pretty blanketly, here's some of the business risks that we can see in the organization and potentially how you can address it using X, Y, or Z. But you being a vendor, how do you communicate business risk to an organization? How do you get them to understand we're not pitching product, we're solving problems? Absolutely. I mean, that's one of the fine balances that we have to do in our industry. And I think it's coming down to, you know, for a long time, the vendors have been speaking loudly and, and talking and uh, enforcing uh, to the companies and, and the businesses out there. And it's a case of finding that fine balance. And one of the things that I'm fortunate enough is that in my role is that I'm seeing more as I have that opportunity to take the vendor hat off and speak, you know, honestly, directly with those organizations and businesses. Because what I'm typically seen as is a, as more of an educator, as more of that translator, helping understand what the complications are, understanding what things around the regulations are, what's happening in other industries across the globe. So I'm typically fortunate enough that I've been recognized in the industry as somebody who they can talk to honestly as both that vendor, but also as a cybersecurity professional. So I've been fortunate enough to get into that role. And it was a few years ago, actually in, in, in a previous company where I was fortunate enough to um, get introduced into a certain scenario when we talked about business risk. And in the past, I was one of those vendors. I used to be one of those, uh, you know, uh, leaders that went into organizations and did executive briefings and I told them about the threat landscape and I told them about the things that were high risks and I basically told them these are the things you should be doing uh, to solve those but a few years ago I had the opportunity to do a penetration test in a power station and uh, what happened was the results of that power station penetration test I had the opportunity myself and the CISO we both went in together into the executive uh, briefing. And we were there to basically, the, the CISO's goal was to basically uh, show you know the progression over the past year. And also a part of that was to also request a new budget. And during that presentation, we went in with a typical, and this is over four years ago, we went in with a typical vendor pitch that you hear at all the trade shows. We went in with the fear, the threats, the attacks, you know, um, these are, you know, what I say, human-based uh, threats, the insider threats, and all of these things that basically the organization has to think about in compliance and regulations and GDPR and so forth. And these are the things that you need to be spending um, and solutions you need to be putting in place to solve those. And after, you know, it's a very quick presentation and afterwards the board goes off and they do their, you know, intervention and they, they have their, their side meetings and they talk, talk about uh, the results and then they come back and then they present uh, their findings back to the team. And uh, the CISO and myself were there and, and our budget was declined. And we were shocked because we thought that we'd explained it clearly. 
And unfortunately enough, what happened was the CEO and the CFO said, but we want to talk with you after this. We, we need to have a discussion. And I think it was actually one of the first times where the board and the CEO and CFO said, no, we want to have a discussion because we know how important this is and we need it to work. We need to find a solution. So we got this side meeting, we sat down, we had the discussion and the CEO said, your presentation was great. However, we don't understand security. We don't understand, uh, you know, basically what these solutions are doing. And what you didn't tell us was how this benefits the business. You didn't tell us the return on investment. You didn't tell, tell us how it's going to be helping employees do their job. And it, really, it was a big realization for me is that I realized that, that that was a moment in time and it was a benefit for me to, to have these opportunities where you have somebody from the board who's willing to be honest and direct with you. That was a realization that they were right. We didn't do basically the proper tangible impact to the business from a cybersecurity risk perspective. And so we actually asked the question, it was interesting enough, we actually asked the question to the CFO who was lucky enough to be you know, in that same discussion. We said, how do we tangibly find the risk, the ROI to the business? He said, it's quite simple. He said, basically, it's the cost of doing nothing. What is the cost of us doing nothing versus the cost of doing something? And we basically do that subtraction and that's your cyber risk gap. And then, I love that. I love if, that, Joe. The cost of doing nothing yeah. is, is brilliant because you're right. That is where the risk lies. And I have held so true to one statement, and that is something I, I, I actually picked up in the Harvard University Cybersecurity Risk Management Program, that risk is the language of the boardroom. Absolutely. It's what, Would you it's what, agree with that? It's exactly, and I mean, that's what they said to us is that we understand business risk, not, not just risk, but business risk, financial risk, operational risk, um, you know, their supply chain risk. They understand risk. And what we had to do was we had to translate cybersecurity risks into how it impacts the business and it therefore becomes business risk. And that's ultimately what it became the transition. And it was actually a moment in time where I realized as well, and this is going back to your original question about the vendor relationship, is that we as vendors need to be not, uh, let's say, being always talking and always saying the best practices. Sometimes we actually need to be listening. We need to be the ears. We need to sit and ask the right questions and listen to the customers, listen to the employees. And this is one of the changes we need to do you know, going forward and understand what is business risk to them. And then we had to then, of course, educate it how cybersecurity can help reduce the business risk. And that's the big disconnect that we've had for such a long time that it needs to be one of the main focus points going forward is yep. that my job is not to solve cybersecurity. My job is to use my experience and knowledge to help companies reduce the risk of cyber to the business. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, you talked about listening and I, I love the saying that, you know, God gave us two ears and one mouth proportionately for a reason. We should be listening twice as much as we're talking. And I could not agree more with that saying when it comes to this exact situation that we're talking about now. But you keep using the term translator. Do you really think that, you know, IT SecOps and vendors and CISOs are really speaking a completely different language than the, you know, CXOs that requires a translator to 
help them understand? Absolutely. I think translation is probably the kind of more simpler term to understand what actually, you know, what's happening. Um, but really what I've actually found is, is that how we measure success is different. And that's what needs translated, is that how the employees get measured in doing their job and being successful and how they contribute to the business. How sales gets measured in doing their job and gets contribution to the business. How the executive team are measured in actually satisfying their customers, the shareholders, and, and so forth. So this is really, it's, it's the measurement side of things, is how we measure things is basically what we actually translate into business success. And ultimately, what's happening is, is how we measure security is, needs to be basically completely updated. We need to be able to tra translate the cybersecurity measurements into business measurements that the actually board then understands. So my translation, what I help to do, is really not just understand basically, you know, put it into simple business metaphors and business terms, but also help make sure that the measurements translates into actually business value. And that's really the big area that we need to do much more better in. Do you think some of the cybersecurity frameworks out there need modification or updating to be able to include just what you said there? I, I'm, I'm thinking like the CIS top 20 here and it's going through my head. And if you look at their prescriptive guidance, none of it speaks to what you're going to get out of it. It just says, you know, here's these, you know, top six in the uh, first implementation group, uh, you know, going through each one of those. But in reading those types of documents and looking through the entire framework, it's not speaking to each one of those top 20 controls, what you're really going to get out of it in the end. It's just saying this is what the, the recommendations are. So do you think we need improvement in some of these cyber frameworks, whether if it's CIS, NIST, or you know what have you? They, they actually are, they, one of the great things is that's actually in progress. That's actually things that they're actually prioritizing right now. So NIST introduced the risk framework and actually you know, evolving it as, you know, basically throughout the last year, year or two. Uh, so NIST is actually starting to do it. Um, SANS have also started to do the risk framework. The MITRE framework is also including a risk framework yeah. as well. Yeah. So they're all starting to, to realize that they need to be uh, aligning to risk because not only is it about, you know, making sure you're helping reduce the risk to the business, but it's also helping make sure that we actually have the ability to uh, show basically the business why we need the security budget to actually do it in the first place. Uh, because we're always saying about we're not getting enough money to do what we need to do to help the business you know, against cyber attacks. Um, it's because we're not showing that value and we're not translating it correctly. Uh, so there is the frameworks are being developed, um, but I think that they need to be not focused. There's, they're still focused too much on the technology and the security side of things. And then enough how to evolve that into the business message and business speak. It's like if you think about, you know, I simply, you know, let's say the hotel, I use a hotel metaphor sometimes to talk about a lot of access controls. It's like putting 10 locks on the hotel room door is not going to make a, the actually person who needs to use that door more effective and more efficient. It just means that, yes, it's guaranteed that that person is going to be the person that's authorized to get into it. Uh, but what's the point if it's taking them 10 times longer to do that task? Right. And this needs to be the balance. And, and I think 
This is probably a good time for us to switch gears just a little bit because we're kind of stepping into an area that I did want to discuss with you. In doing some of my research leading up to today's broadcast, wanted to watch some of your previous YouTube videos and podcast series, etc. I think I stumbled on a, a tripwire, a, a sensitive topic for you, one that kind of hits a nerve. Let's talk about zero trust. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, you know, <laughs> when we're talking about vendors out there and using some of their their FUD or fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and, and they're doing their product pitches, you know, for the past, I would say, two, three years, this whole zero trust has been one of the overarching themes that's been, I, I would say, almost overused. Why is it that that zero trust really rubs you the wrong way? Because what's happening is is that, I mean, it takes me back to even 10, 11, even I think 12 years when I did a uh, assessment in a large transportation company. And one of the things why security fails time and time again is that when we create friction for employees being able to do their job. And friction does not help security. It creates a negative experience it means that we're not focusing at the actually business value and of the employee performing their task and doing their job. One of the things that I realized that when I did uh, a particular assessment uh, that uh, 10, 11 years ago uh, with a transportation company was that we were enforcing security. We were becoming enforcers and pushing security in people that one is weren't educated and didn't understand it, but actually creating more friction that they were unable to perform their job well and be successful. And at that time, I realized that we were actually focusing on some of the wrong things. We were not listening enough to how does employee do their job, what they need to be doing, and how they're measured for success. And when we look at zero trust, the problem with zero trust introduces is it actually creates more friction and actually more doors for the employee to go through to actually do their job. And it doesn't really look at, you know, sometimes the problem with many of the vendors who talk about zero trust is they make it look like zero trust is the goal. And it's not the goal. Zero trust is a mechanism of what I refer to as building trust. It's how you get introduced. It's how you get verified. And what you need to be doing is creating the balance. So zero trust should not be basically the continuous goal. It should actually be a mechanism to build trust. And so using zero trust as the term is a misdirection, misunderstanding to what we're really trying to do. And what it is, is that we're trying to build trust by doing continuous verification when we need to do things like dynamic or adaptive risk in order to use zero trust as a foundation to build that. So that's the problem is that when we focus too much on the technology portion and not so much the business element of it, the technology becomes the solution, which it's not. Um, and this is ultimately my issue with zero trust, is that yes, zero trust is a, is a mechanism to build that foundation. Um, but my goal is to build trust is to if we get introduced, for example, um, and you meet someone and somebody, a third person who you know and trust says, this is this person, this is their ID, this is their name, and you get familiar. And of course your brain makes a, you know, a biometric fingerprint of that person. Every time I meet that person in the same location, the same building, do you need to re-verify that identity every single time? You only need to do it when some type of risk changes, when the dynamics change. And this is what you need to, you know, so it should be dynamic trust or adaptive trust using zero trust as the foundation to build it. 
And this is what we should be looking at is that what are we trying, what's the goal we're trying to build versus what's the actually the technology that enables it. Agreed. It's almost like that bio recall, right? But going back to any time that there's an insider breach, you know, or insider threat, what happens though when you have that trusted entity that has now gone rogue, whether if it's a rogue IT admin, it's an exiting employee, it's, you know, whatever, but they have a known identity, we've recalled it, they, they have access, right? Where does the zero trust account for those types of users or the lack of zero trust and building that trust like you were saying? Yeah, absolutely. So, so it comes down to when we talk about, unless uh, you, you know, use the term insider threats, and I think sometimes we use it too broadly, um, you know, just like we do the term hacker, which is sometimes used too broadly, because in my term, hackers are good people with unique skills. It's the criminals who we should be focusing on who do the criminal acts. And it's the same with insider threats. We look at the term too broadly sometimes, and we have to sometimes break it down to the different types of insider threats that there are. There's Absolutely. No one and unknown insider threats. There's those who are doing it maliciously, intentionally, knowingly, and there are those who are simply secondary victims. Um, I've came across instances in the past. I worked in a digital forensics case a few years ago uh, in Ukraine, and this was an interesting one. This actually made me a realization. It was a ransomware attack and uh, the ransomware attack, the uh, victim had applied for basically financial aid uh, to recover. And uh, when investigating the actually ransomware case, what ended up was uh, the findings was that this particular company had actually infected themselves with ransomware to cover up a financial fraud case. So oh, wow. the biggest misdirections that you get so we have to take insider threat is sometimes you have, and that was the realization that that instant for me was one that really can open my eyes into don't look at things as they seem. Um, I even when we talk about, I love the, 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 the mention from Mika um, uh, about the, uh, uh, the drone being shot down by Iran. And the question was, is that did that drone actually have a USB stick that's containing malware? Is that the new way of delivering malicious malware to your, to your, <laughs> right. to your party? So we had to look at things as misdirection, understand what the real intentions are. And when we talk about insider threats, we have to break it down to the different categories. And, but of course, the one that we're seeing more often is, is there's the malicious intentional insider who's you know, changing roles or leaving a company or is disruptive and decides to do something uh, to harm their employer. Yeah. And this is where two important things need to be in place. Um, and the two important things that supports the ability for a company to reduce the risk. We're always talking about reducing the risk. Um, and As we need to. Yep, and it's, that's what it gets back into the business value, is that one is the contractual agreement between the company and the employee is a, a vital important uh, to reduce the risk of insider threats. And one of that employment contract is always about if they need to go to competitors, if they take intellectual property, what is the actually contractual agreement between the employee and the employer when it comes to competitive intellectual property details and what's their actually rights um, to be able to, to take uh, and what not to take and what's the actual penalties for doing so. A lot of contracts prevent employees actually going to competitors. It doesn't necessarily 
stop it from happening, but yeah. it does put the right legal framework in place for those companies to be able to mitigate the risks. It, it, it does, and obviously, depending upon jurisdiction and, and the laws involved, you know, you have a lot of employment contracts that are completely void just based off of where that particular employee is a resident of, for example, here in the state of Texas. Good luck trying to enforce any type mm -hmm. of non-compete agreement. It, it's not going to hold up. Like, Absolutely. It, you know, you hit on something that is so profound and just really shook me when you were talking about it. That whole ransomware situation, now we're talking a whole different variety of insurance fraud. Absolutely. I've, I've never considered the, 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 the threat model of an organization having the audacity to infect themselves with ransomware just to be able to collect financial aid and hopefully cover up any other misdeeds. That is, that is just it's, it's one of the things mind-boggling. When I actually came across it, and, and, and uh, for me, it was like it was it was impressive attempt um, you know, to get away with a crime. But even so, is using ransomware is one of the best ways to destroy evidence. And, and I, I guarantee when I came across this case, it's not the only one. I'm pretty sure many companies out there, um, you know, insiders in those companies who are looking to cover up digital criminal activity, and even, uh, you know, criminal hackers or criminal uh, cyber criminals who are actually accessing companies and trying to get away with data, or even employees leaving a company and want to hide their tracks that they've actually stolen data may actually even be in the case of deploying ransomware, clicking in it accidentally, um, destroying the data when in fact they've actually <laughs> walked away with it on other devices. Uh, so sometimes we had to look at things that step back and look at the bigger picture and try to try to look through it from the eyes of you know sometimes the criminal or, or the hacker techniques and try to say is what is the potential motives and is there a potential financial uh, motive in case here. And that's one thing I've always learned during digital forensics and its response is that always step back and look at it from the broader perspective because sometimes what you might be looking at and you know, from an insider threat or ransomware case or DDoS attack, whatever it may be, there may be a bigger picture here or it might be a small just uh, you know, thing to misdirect you from what's really happening in the other side of the organization or, or to take your eyes away from a different location. So that kind of brings up one of the other topics that I'd like to run by you. And, and when it comes to this type of data and what we are seeing exfiltrated, uh, what employees are taking with them, what they're blowing up, you know, detonating, you know, for organizations to really be able to reduce their risk and be able to improve their security posture. To me, one of the things that tends to be lacking within the corporate sector, the private sector, is something that's pretty prevalent in the federal, around the world, and that's data classification, right? Being able to understand the data that you're handling, understand the security controls that need to be in place and based upon various levels of access and full control. So uh, what do you see happening today or what is your recommendation for the CISOs that are sitting out there or the CIOs when it comes to classifying their data for 
these purposes? Do you have any recommendations or? Absolutely, and this is, this is one of the most important topics. This is what I was going back into when I talked earlier about business risk and business value. Data risk and data classification is one of the things that helps you actually derive to tangible business impact value because that data itself has a tangible value to the business. So data impact assessment, data classification, is one of the most critical things organizations need to perform and need to do and need to understand. And it comes in two parts is that when you're going through, as you mentioned, you know, I always recommend do this in, in a combined effort, is as you go through this data classification practice, you also want to combine it with what I refer to as the principle of least privilege and access controls, is that what is the person or what is the application that needs to have access to that data? And then, of course, you want to tie it in with the security controls that you want to satisfy the access to that data as well. And that sometimes can be tied to things like regulatory compliance. It can be tied to you know, uh, personal information, credit card information, and so forth. So doing those things in combination is security controls with the uh, principle of least privilege um, and also the data classification. What it really does is a lot of organizations want us to understand their data, understand who needs access to it, understand what security is in place, and then it also gets that tangible business impact. So it allows you to have that really measurement, interactive, very uh, business value ROI discussion with the board when it comes to that time. So these are one of the key kind of important portions that organizations need to do. When you think about one of the metaphors I've used to, to simplify this is when you build a bank, you don't build the bank from the walls out and into the vault. You actually understand is what am I protecting? What, am, what do I need to put in that vault? Um, how does people need to access it? What's the way to get that in and out of the vault? Who's those individuals that should be permitted? What security controls need to be around it? And you build it from that uh, outwards. And oh, oh. this is simply the what organizations need to be looking at. Okay, but Joe, that fits a different model than what we're living in today. And let me, let me explain <laughs> it, and then I'm gonna ask a, a very pointed question. So you're right, we do have this concept of, in my first IT role was actually working for a bank a very large regional bank so i i get what you're talking about but that vault fits very well in an on-prem world where we can kind of control all that stuff and, and put the framework and the controls in place but what's happening today and i'm going to ask this question and i want to hear your response but we're living in a mobile first mm -hmm. cloud enabled user-centric world so when, when it comes to the architecture because our perimeters have evaporated right Absolutely. they don't exist anymore <laughs> exactly so what happens i mean we're essentially having to design an architecture for vapor so so i've got i've got a great explanation for this and it's and you know it's one thing that i i kind of had a realization not long ago um, that helps explain this. And you're absolutely right, there is no primitive anymore. And many organizations have moved to cloud, they've moved to hybrid clouds, they've moved to you know, uh, SaaS applications, there's highly connected, highly mobile staff. And it comes down to one of the key important things, and this goes back to even my experience in Estonia, is that it comes down to, and when I talk about cloud, one thing is, is I try to explain this in a simple way, is that many companies when I talk about my kind of reference to cloud, what they've simply done is that if you think about on-premises being your parking, your garage that you have multiple cars in, 
And that's an on-premise model. I've got my servers, I've got all the valuable things that's in my cars in locked in a garage, and there's only one door in and out to my garage. That's your on-premise model. And simply what I've done, and companies have moved to the cloud, is they've got in their cars, they've opened the garage door, and I've drove across the street to the parking lot outside in the public area with next to everyone else's cars. And it means that you have to think about now, where previously on my on-premise model, I had one door to get access. That's where I had to monitor and view who was going in and out and using the vehicles. When it's in the open parking lot outside, where there might now be a security um, that one of the hosting providers providing, this is really where it starts to get important that identities and access controls, and especially privilege access, becomes the core foundation to be able to control a very mobile, highly connected, um, you know, basically no perimeter world. And this is even what Estonia has done in the entire country of citizens, is that if you can basically tie back the true identity using a multi-factor or some type of verification to those individuals, and privilege access is where it allows you to control the access to those vehicles, no matter which cloud or which service or where they're located, that's where you control the security. And that's where basically allows organizations to adapt so where previously on-premise was all about securing that single door entry and maybe the, you know, the locks to the cars, when you move to the cloud, you have to think very differently that I need to think about. Many people are walking around that parking lot. So therefore, I want to make sure only authorized people are getting access to my systems and my data and my applications. And this is really where that whole mindset has to change, especially in a very hybrid, very diverse, very distributed, decentralized world. It comes back to the core elements which is identity. It could be machine, could be person, could be application, could be hardware, but it's really important that how you tie that to the access controls and what privileges they may have. And this is where you get into where privileges becomes a very important key here is that when I authenticate and verify, am I coming in at a level to access a certain data or that we talked about data classification before, is that am I accessing a certain type of data which has a certain security control need but let's say I now want to look at another piece of data which is financial or which is personal information of employees or which is legal data. Do I, I'm, am I moving laterally across or am I upping my authentication and authorization level? And maybe I need peer reviews. And this is really when we talk about how you solve all of that and this all ties into insider threats, everything. When employees leave, the authentication that they have means that anything that they have access to that's sensitive, they have to level up, they have to authorize up. Meaning, therefore, right. they no longer have access. They may need peer review to gain access to it, meaning that they had to get one of my colleagues to now give me access where yesterday that I didn't have that anymore. So yep. this is really where organizations can really take a very clear approach um, at looking at from a business value, business risk, data classification, access controls, and bringing all those together for the fundamental change of being able to innovate and be able to be very dynamic and adaptive and also allow you to easily adopt new solutions as well because when organizations are looking to bring on new services to help their businesses you know, do more and do better, sometimes you have to think of how well can I easily integrate that into my existing services, processes, technology and people. And by having those fundamental core elements of identity, access and data classification makes those tasks so much easier. Absolutely. And that fits right into that whole privilege access management that you guys fit into you know if you go back to your example of you know the car in the garage and the car park you know the ones that are sitting in the car park if it's a you know let's just say a fiat 
it, it may not be as critical should that one be compromised, you know, window busted out, car stolen, or rummaged through, what have you. But perhaps that Rolls Royce, you know, that's you a different story. Right? Yeah, you want much more security around that. You want to, you know, this is go back to my metaphor from Belfast: is that uh, if you want to, if you want to reduce the risk, stay off your, Falls Road. <laughs> stay off of Falls Road, but you want to park your car next to a nicer car that has lesser security, <laughs> as uh, sometimes what you're looking to do. Um, but absolutely, you have to look at it from basically the value. And you're right, if you look at it from a car model perspective, each of those has different business values to the organization. And therefore, you want to make sure that the security controls that are applied to those um, in that parking lot have the right uh, security that you're, that reduces your risk and that you're happy with. And sometimes for companies, that might be cyber insurance. It might be saying that I'm willing to pay just for insurance. I don't want to make changes because it just complicates and creates uh, friction. So therefore, insurance will be my satisfaction to, to reduce that business risk. Yes, I, that risk transference, I, I get it. You know, but cybersecurity insurance is not an excuse for these organizations. And unfortunately, I think that's what a lot of them are trying to use it as. We're going to do this, pay this premium, and not have the appropriate controls in place to prevent having to use that policy to begin with, you know? Anyhow, that's a debate for another day. (laughs) Um, I could go on on for that topic for hours as well, so we we can leave it for another show. (laughs) All right, all right. So before we close out and open it up for uh, our audience here to ask any questions that they have for you, You've taken time out of your day to be able to join us. Uh, I want to give you an opportunity just to briefly describe Vicotic and what you guys do. Absolutely, thanks. And, and, and that's, I think, one of the, you know, my role in Vicotic is the chief security scientist. So my time is spent heavily on the research side of things and helping understand, you know, the risks and challenges that many organizations. So I'm, I'm the ears and eyes for Vicotic in the open, you know, in the, in the world and in the business world. And what Thicotic does is we focus around privilege access management. And it's really about making sure that there's a separation between having access to those most sensitive, most critical uh, devices, systems, and applications and services and data within your organization that you provide consistency and security controls between those who need to use it and access it. Uh, so whether it being humans, non-humans, whether it being things like shared privilege accounts, so what we do is we help make sure that the passwords, the auditing, and everything is protected around those. And that's one of the core elements that we do. We help businesses protect the privilege access. And some of the things that, you know, that I've you know, done as well, I've authored, as you mentioned, several books, and I think a great book for, for the audience to, to read as a follow-up to this is Dichotic's Least Privileged Cybersecurity for Dummies book. I know it's a dummies you know, branded book. Um, it doesn't mean you know <laughs> that it's for dummies, but it's actually for smart people as well. Um, and it's something that people will definitely get value from. Absolutely. So uh, I'm definitely going to check that out now. Is that freely available from your site or how do they get their hands on it? Is it Amazon book or what? It's a digital book. Um, so we have it basically available free to download from the website. And I'm pretty sure we'll be able to, to provide a, a link to the audience to, to easily get access to that. So that's something we can, we can make um, afterwards. Um, but the book is really that's simple format. I've had so much great you know, feedback from it that it really takes it, you know, it's a read that anyone from the even executives can take 
read it from beginning to end. You can read it to your kids. It's a great bedtime story as well. <laughs> um, I find it puts my kids to sleep really quickly. <laughs> um, but it's one of those things that really kind of, you know, um, simplifies a very complicated topic. And Excellent. Easy for people to understand and that's the goal of the book. Great. So, yeah, I'll, I'll grab a link for that from you and include it in the show notes for those that are listening afterwards. Well, thank you, Joe. I appreciate you taking time out to join us. It's been an incredibly insightful dialogue. Before I let you off the hook, sir, do you mind taking some questions from the audience? Absolutely. I'd be happy to answer any questions that anyone has. Fantastic. With that in mind, if you do have a question, comment, or just want to thank Joe for taking time out to join us, feel free. Go ahead at this time, unmute yourself, and join in the conversation. So, Joe, uh, given the amount of ransomware attacks, given the amount of uh, compromises that you're seeing, why do you not, why, why, what is your speculation as to why or companies aren't using privilege access management tools? I think it's a historical problem. I think one of the reasons why is that you know, many companies have looked at it probably historically, that it was something that was sometimes, you know, very difficult, and very complex to do and very, sometimes even very expensive. Um, but if you look at, if you review today's marketplace uh, for privilege access management, uh, there's more options and there's more flexibility. Um, it's easier to use, easier to deploy, and easier to gain access. I think we just have to look at it from basically, you know, sometimes when you experience something in the past, um, it may have not fitted your organization then, but uh, today there's so much flexible options, you know, as well as cloud delivery uh, options as well, where you can even get it as security as a service. So I think organizations today, I think they, you know, they probably looked at it as it was an application or a solution that was only available for the large enterprise and, and was out of the reach. Um, but uh, there's many vendors, including ourselves, that has simplified that to making actually privilege access management affordable and usable for any size of organization uh, and fits their needs, whether it being a cloud or security as a service or an on-premise solution. So I think that's one of the things is that, uh, you know, it's more of education and, and, and providing people with knowledge into what the current capabilities are today. An excellent oh. question, thank you. Thanks for answering that, Joseph. So I have something. We, we sit here and we talk about the insider threats and, you know, trying to protect ourselves from people that are leaving the company. But what happens when your insider threat is a subcontractor <laughs> that he isn't even aware that they're really an insider threat. Case in point, Custom and Borders Protection, mm -hmm. the largest employer or federal law enforcement agency in line in the Department of Homeland Security. They didn't get hacked, but their subcontractor got hacked. And they were downloading without permission from CDP mm -hmm. onto their servers all of this data. And then 400 gigabytes of that data got hacked. Yep. How important is it for these companies and businesses to know? Not only do you need to protect yourself from true insider threats from within the company, but the people you're hiring as subcontractors, that they need to have their systems locked down too. Absolutely. This is one of the, the major issues. And actually, me, myself as a penetration tester and ethical hacker, supply chain is one of my roots into organizations. That's definitely the area that uh, is, for most organizations today, the highest risk. Um, one of the reasons why is that for many of the supply chain, 
their security is typically either you know much less or non-existent to the security controls that you put in place. And what you're doing is you're opening your doors uh, to those risks. So it's really important that you do look at supply chain as one of the major risks of the business and that you do treat them um, as, uh, you know, looking at data, data classification again, so looking at what data they have access to and what can they do, uh, whether can they read it, can they copy it, can they download it, what is that risk that you want to limit it. And also, how, how many people within those organizations have access to it? How many of the suppliers do you want to dedicate it? So what I typically have done is, you know, those types of sensitive data, you should treat it similar to the, what we do with PCI, is that you can only access it from certain systems, and therefore, they have the login to the systems, like a privilege access management solution, that only from there gives them the visibility to viewing that data. And it means that you can see how that data has been used, how it's been transferred, where it's located. So putting something in between uh, would definitely reduce the risk of those. And we have to, time and time, it, it happens too many times, and organizations really need to get a much better control of reducing the risk from supply chain. You know, you hit on a good point there, Joe, and maybe these vendors particularly those that are providing subcontracting services to local, state, and federal government, maybe we need to be putting them into the same uh, quarantine environment that we do with SCADA systems in ICS and saying, okay, if you're a contractor and you're coming into our network, this is the isolated network and these are the only systems which you are able to touch. There is a direct path. We have the, the right firewall rules in place. You have to go through a quarantine screening for your system to even connect, you know, yep. using some of the network access controls, security baselines, those kinds of things. We do need to be more diligent in how we're handling that supply chain and, and subcontracting. And this is going back to the topic that we had earlier on zero trust, is that it's about that um, you start with that baseline, is that how much I don't trust the supplier's machine because it's not mine. I don't trust the supplier's credentials because I didn't issue them. Um, I don't do the background checks. And this is where you, where you really look at, you have that foundation and say, now I need to build trust. What things do I need to do in order to give them the access? What's the security controls that they must satisfy for me to allow them into my environment? And this is what you're really looking to do with, with supply chain, with contractors, uh, to make sure you're reducing the, the risk of the business. Absolutely. So with that, I'm going to give a last call for any questions, comments, kudos for our guest, Joe Carson. Going once, going twice. With that, Joe, I want to thank you once again so much for coming on to the show. This has been absolutely fantastic. I cannot wait to get this stuff up there and let others be able to listen from their favorite podcast player. A um, <clears throat> couple show notes. Next week, July 4th holiday here in the United States of America, we're going to be proudly uh, celebrating it and taking the week off. So there will not be an episode for next week, folks. But when we come back, are we going to come back with a bang? Joining us on July 10th will be the one and only Ann Johnson, Corporate Vice President of Cybersecurity for Microsoft Corporation. Cannot wait to have Ann on the show. Following Ann, we're going to have Troy Hunt from HaveIBeenPwned.com fame. 
if you're not familiar with Troy, he runs the website that is referenced by every major data breach that ever occurs in the media. Uh, we are going to have him on the show talking about data breaches, data privacy, data protection, right? All those key elements and how you can maintain your own data privacy and protection. And of course, following that and tying into it, the following week, we'll be joined by M.A. Taylor, the director of the film, The Creepy Line. This is your trench. You got about a month. Watch it on Amazon or iTunes. You're going to have your mind blown when you realize from this documentary just how creepy it is to live in a world where Google and Facebook exist. You owe it to yourself, particularly if you're in this industry. You owe it to yourself to watch that film. With that, this is Cyberspeaks Live. I am Duncan Macklin. You can find me as at InfosecWar on Twitter. You can hit me up on LinkedIn. I'm fairly open there. Joe, how can folks get uh, in touch with you? Likewise, I think my two of my major challenges for people to easily access me is, of course, through LinkedIn as well. So I'm easily findable uh, on LinkedIn and uh, do share quite frequently a lot of my thoughts and opinions and uh, insights. <laughs> Um, as well as uh, on Twitter as well with the handle it's at Joe underscore Carson. Um, so yeah, I do uh, enjoy sharing my, my thoughts and opinions uh, frequently in those two locations. So if you're interested, you can follow me on either LinkedIn or Twitter. Absolutely. Folks, with that, this is Cyberspeaks Live, and it's a wrap. We'll see you after the July 4th holiday, July 10th. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Cyberspeaks Live. Remember to visit our blog at cyberspeaks.com to sign up for our newsletter of upcoming episodes and special guest co-hosts. If you'd like to be a guest co-host or sponsor the show, please email us at speakup at cyberspeaks.com. That's all for this week. And as always, stay safe and secure out there.